Chapters 35, 36, and 37 of The Pawn's Count by E. Phillips Oppenheim. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Tom Weiss. Chapter 35 Mr. Oscar Fisher and his friend, Senator Theodore Hastings, stood side by side a week later in the bar of one of the most fashionable of New York hotels. They were passing away the few minutes before Pamela and her aunt would be ready to join them in the dining-room above. "'Very little news, I fancy,' Hastings remarked, glancing at the tape which was passing through his companion's fingers. "'Nothing of any importance,' Fisher replied. "'Nothing.' The older man glanced searchingly at his companion, the change in whose tone was ominous. Fisher was standing with the tape in his hand, his eyes glued upon a certain paragraph. The senator took out his eyeglasses and looked over his friend's shoulders. "'What's this?' he demanded, eh? Fisher was fighting a great battle and fighting it well. "'Something wrong apparently with Frank Roughton,' he observed, an old college friend of mine. They made him governor of only last year. Hastings read the item thoughtfully. "'Governor Roughton this morning tendered his resignation as governor of the state of... We understand that it was at once accepted.' Numerous arrests have taken place with reference to the great explosion at the Pembridge Powder Factory. "'Looks rather fishy, that,' Hastings observed thoughtfully. "'I'm sorry for Roughton,' Fisher declared. "'He was a perfectly straight man, and I am sure he has done his best.' "'Great friend of yours?' the other asked curiously. "'We were intimately acquainted,' was the brief answer. The two men finished their cocktails in silence. On their way upstairs the senator took his companion's arm. Fisher, he said, you'll forgive me if I put a certain matter to you plainly? Naturally. Within the last few days, Hastings proceeded, there have been seven explosions or fires at various factories throughout the States. It is a somewhat significant circumstance, he added, after a slight pause, that every one of these misfortunes has occurred at a factory where munitions of some sort for the Allies have been in the process of manufacture. Shrewd men have naturally come to the conclusion that there is some organization at work. I should doubt it, Fisher replied. You must remember that there is always a great risk of disasters in factories where explosives are being handled. It is a new thing to many of the manufacturers here, and it is obvious that they are not making use of all the necessary precautions. I see, Hastings observed reflectively. So that is how you would explain this epidemic of disasters, eh? Certainly. At the same time, Fisher, to set my mind entirely at rest, Hastings continued, I should like your assurance that you have nothing whatever to do with any organization, should there be such a thing, including in its object the destruction of American property. I will do more than answer your question in the direct negative, was the firm reply. I will assure you that no such organization exists. I am relieved to hear it, Hastings confessed. This resignation of Roughton, however, seems a strange thing. Most of these fires have occurred in his state. Ah, there is Senator Joyce waiting for us, and Pamela and Mrs. Hastings. Mr. Hastings, as a host, was in his element. His manners and tact, which his enemies declared were far too perfect, were both admirably displayed in the smaller ways of life. He guided the conversation into light yet opportune subjects, and he utterly ignored the fact that Senator Joyce, one of the great politicians of the day, whose support of his nomination was already more than half promised, seemed distraught and a little cold. It was Pamela who quite inadvertently steered the conversation into a dangerous channel. "'What has Governor Roughton been doing, Mr. Fisher?' 
she asked. There was a moment's silence. Pamela's question had fallen something like a bombshell amongst the little party. It was their guest who replied. "'The matter is occupying the attention of the country very largely at the moment, Miss Van Tail,' he said. "'It is perhaps unfortunate that Governor Roughton seems to have allowed his sympathies to be so clearly known.' "'He is German by birth, is he not?' Pamela inquired. "'Most decidedly not,' Fisher asserted. "'I was at Harvard with him.' "'All the same,' Pamela murmured under her breath, "'I think that he was born at Stuttgart.' "'He is an American citizen,' Senator Joyce observed, "'and has reached a high position here. "'We of the administration may be wrong,' he continued, "'but we believe, and we think that we have a right to believe, "'that when any man of conscience and ideals takes the oath, "'he is free from all previous prejudices. "'He is an American citizen.' nothing more and nothing less of course that is magnificent pamela declared but it isn't common sense is it and you haven't answered my original question yet i'm not in a position to do so miss van tail joyce replied the trouble probably is that governor roughton has been considered incompetent as so many of these disasters have taken place unhindered in his state there was a rumor pamela persisted that he was under arrest quite untrue i am sure Fisher muttered. There was a general diversion of the conversation, but the sense of uneasiness remained. Pamela and Mrs. Hastings, at the conclusion of the little banquet, acting upon a hint from their host, made their way to one of the small drawing-rooms for their coffee. Left alone, the three men drew their chairs closer together. Joyce's fine face seemed somehow to have become a little harder and more unsympathetic. He sipped the water which was his only beverage, and pushed away the cigars in which he generally indulged. "'Mr. Hastings,' he pronounced, "'I have given the subject of supporting your nomination my deepest consideration. I was at one time, I must confess, favorably disposed towards the idea. I have changed my mind. I have decided to give my support to the present administration.' Fisher's face was dark with anger. He even allowed an expletive to escape from his lips. Hastings, however, remained master of himself. I will not conceal from you, Mr. Joyce, he confessed, that I am exceedingly disappointed. You have fully considered everything, I presume, our pledge, for instance, to nominate you as my successor? I have considered everything, Joyce replied. The drawback in my mind, to be frank with you, is that I doubt whether you would receive sufficient support throughout the country. It is my idea, he went on, although I may be wrong, of course, that the support of the German-Americans, who, you must allow me to maintain, are an exceedingly unneutral part of America, will place you in an unpopular position. Should you succeed in getting yourself elected, which I very much doubt, you will be an unpopular president. I would rather wait my time. "'You have changed your views,' Fisher muttered. "'To be perfectly frank with you, I have,' Joyce acknowledged. "'These outrages throughout the States are, to my mind, blatant and criminal.' Directly or indirectly, the German-American public is responsible for them, indirectly by inflammatory speeches, reckless journalism, and point-blank laudation of illegal acts. Directly, well, here I can speak only from my own suspicions, so I will remain silent. But my mind is made up. A man in this country, as you know, he added, need only make one mistake, and his political future is blasted. I am not inclined to risk making that one mistake. Hastings sighed. He was making a brave effort to conceal a great disappointment. "'One cannot argue with you, Mr. Joyce,' he regretted. 
you have come to a certain conclusion, and words are not likely to alter it. There is no one I would so dearly have loved a number amongst my supporters, but I see that it is a privilege for which I may not hope. We will, if you are ready, Fisher, join the ladies. They rose from the table a few minutes later. Fisher, who had been eagerly watching his opportunity, drew Senator Joyce on one side for a moment as they passed down the crowded corridor. "'Mr. Joyce,' he said, "'I have heard your decision to-night with deeper regret than I can express. Yet more than ever it has brought home one truth to me. Our position towards you was a wrong one. We offered you a reversion when we should have offered you the thing itself.' Senator Joyce swung around. "'Say, Mr. Fisher, what are you getting at?' he asked bluntly. I mean that it is Hastings and I who should have been your supporters, and you should have been our candidate, Fisher suggested boldly. What about it? It isn't too late. Nothing doing, sir, was the firm reply. Theodore Hastings may not be exactly my type of man, but I am not out to see him cornered like that. And besides, to tell you the honest truth, Mr. Fisher, he added, pausing at the door, when I stand for the presidency, I want to do so not on the nomination of you or your friends, or any underground schemers. I want the support of the real American citizen. I want to be free from all outside ties and obligations. I want to stand for America, and America only. I not only want to be president, you see, but I want to be the chosen president of the right sort of people. I am going to ask you to excuse me to the ladies and our host, Mr. Fisher, he concluded holding out his hand. I had a note asking me to visit the Attorney General, which I only received on my way here. I have an idea that it is about this Roughton business. Fisher returned to the others alone. Hastings was clearly disturbed at his guest's departure. His friend and supporter, however, affected to treat it lightly. Joyce is like all these lawyers, he declared. He is simply waiting to see which way the wind blows. I have come across them many times. They like to wait till parties are evenly balanced, till their support makes all the difference, and clinch their bargain then. "'I should have said,' Pamela remarked, "'that Mr. Joyce was a man above that sort of thing.' "'Every man has his price and his weak spot,' her uncle observed didactically. "'Joyce's price is the presidency. His weak spot is popular adulation. I agree with Fisher. He will probably join us later.' Mr. Hastings was summoned to the telephone a moment or two later. Mrs. Hastings sat down to write a note, and Pamela moved her place over to Fisher's side. His face brightened at her spontaneous movement. She shook her head, however, at the little compliment with which he welcomed her. "'This afternoon,' she said softly, "'I met Mr. Lutchester.' "'Is he back in New York?' Fisher asked, frowning. Pamela nodded. "'He told me something which I feel inclined to tell you,' she continued, glancing into her companion's haggard face with a gleam of sympathy in her eyes. "'You'll probably see it in the newspapers tomorrow morning. Governor Roughton's resignation was compulsory. He is under arrest.' "'For negligence?' "'For participation,' was the grave reply. "'Mr. Lutchester has been down to the city where the things took place. He only got back late this afternoon.' "'Lutchester again,' Fisher muttered. "'You see, it's rather in his line,' Pamela reminded him. He is over here to superintend the production of munitions from the factories which are working for the British government. "'He is over here as a sort of general mischief-maker,' Fisher exclaimed fiercely. "'Do I understand that he has been down in—' Pamela nodded. "'He went down with one of the heads of the New York police.' She turned away, but Fisher caught at her wrist. 
"'You know more than this!' he cried hoarsely. The agony in the man's face and tone touched her. After all, he was fighting for the great things. There was nothing mean about Fisher, nothing selfish about his lying and his crimes. "'I have told you all that I can,' she whispered. "'But if you hurried, you could catch the New York tonight, and I think I should advise you to go.'" End of chapter 35 Chapter 36 Fisher, on leaving his unsuccessful dinner-party, drove direct to the residence of Mr. Max H. Bookham in Fifth Avenue. The butler who admitted him looked a little blank at his inquiry. "'Mr. Bookham was expected home yesterday, sir,' he announced. "'He has not arrived, however.' "'Has there been any telegram from him? Any news as to the cause of his non-return?' Fisher persisted. "'I believe that Mr. K., his secretary, has some information, sir,' the man admitted. "'Perhaps you would like to see him.' Fisher did not hesitate and was conducted at once to the study in which Mr. Bookham was wont to indulge in various nefarious stock-exchange adventures. The room was occupied on this occasion by a dejected-looking young man with pasty face and gold spectacles. The apartment, as Fisher was quick to notice, showed signs of a strange disorder. "'Where's Mr. Bookham?' he asked quickly. The young man walked to the door, shook it to be sure that it was closed, and came back again. His tone was ominous, almost dramatic. "'In the state prison, sir,' he announced. "'What for?' Fisher demanded, breathing a little thickly. "'I have no certain information,' the secretary replied with a noncommittal air. "'All I know is that I had a long-distance telephone to burn certain documents, but before I could do so the room and the house were searched by New York detectives, whose warrant it was useless to resist. "'But what's the charge against Mr. Bookham?' "'It's something to do with the disasters,' the young man confided. The governor of the state, who is Mr. Bookham's cousin, is in the same trouble. Better sit down a moment, sir. You're looking white. Mr. Fisher threw himself into an easy chair. He felt like a man who has built a mighty piece of machinery, has set it swinging through space, and watches now its imminent collapse, watches some tiny but ghastly flaw, pregnant with disaster, growing wider and wider before his eyes. What papers did the police take away with them? he asked. There wasn't very much for them, the secretary replied. There was a list of names of the proposed organization which, owing to your very wise intervention, was never formed. There was a list of factories throughout the United States in which munitions are being made, with a black mark against those holding the most important contracts. And there was a letter from Governor Routon. Mr. Bookham hasn't drawn any checks lately for large amounts? Fisher inquired eagerly. There are three in his private checkbook, sir the counterfoils of which are not filled in, was a somewhat dreary admission. Fisher groaned as he received the news. "'Have you any idea about those checks?' he demanded. "'I am afraid,' the other acknowledged, that Mr. Bookham was not very discreet. I reminded him of your advice, that the money should be passed through Sullivan, but he didn't seem to think it worthwhile. "'Look here, let me know the worst at once,' Fisher insisted. Do you believe that any one of these checks was made payable to any of the men who were under arrest? I am afraid, the secretary declared sadly, that the proceeds of one were found on the person of Ed Swindles, intact. Fisher sat for a moment with his head buried in his hands. That any man could have been such a fool. An organization would have been a thousand times safer. Max Bookham was only a very worthy and industrious clothing manufacturer with an intense love for the fatherland and a great veneration for all our institutions. What he had done, he had done wholeheartedly, but foolishly. 
he was a man who should never have been trusted for a moment in the game. After all, the pawns count. Fisher took his leave and reached his hotel a little before midnight. Already he had begun to look over his shoulder in the street. He found his rooms empty with a sense of relief, marred by one little disappointment. Nikasti was to have been there to bid him farewell, Nikasti on his way back to Japan. He ascertained from the office of the hotel that there had been no telephone message or caller. Then he turned to his correspondence, some presentiment already clutching at his strained nerves. There was a letter in a large envelope near the bottom of the pile addressed to him in Nikasti's fine handwriting. He tore open the envelope, and slow horror seized him as he realized its contents. A long photograph unrolled itself before his eyes. The first few words brought confusion and horror to his sense. His brain reeled. This was defeat, indeed. It was a photograph of that other autograph letter. The one which he had given to Nikasti to carry to Japan lay, gross sacrilege, about him in small pieces. There was no other line, no message, nothing but this damning proof of his duplicity. A kind of mental torture seized him. He fought like a caged man for some way out. Every sort of explanation occurred to him only to be rejected, every sort of subterfuge only to be cast aside with a kind of ghastly contempt. He felt suddenly stripped bare. His tongue could serve him no more. He snatched at the telephone receiver and rang up the number for which he searched eagerly through the book. "'Is that the office of the American Steamship Company?' he asked. "'Yes.' What time will the New York sail? In three-quarters of an hour. Who's speaking? Mr. Oscar Fisher. Keep anything you have for me. He threw down the receiver for fear of a refusal, packed a few things feverishly in a dressing bag, dashed the rest of his correspondence into his pocket, and with the bag in one hand and an overcoat over the other arm, he hastened out into the street. He was obliged at first to board a streetcar. Afterwards he found a taxicab and drove under the great wooden shed as the last siren was blowing. He hurried up the gangway, a grim, remorseful figure, a sense of defeat gnawing at his heart, a bitter, haunting fear still with him even when, with the shriek of the tugs, the great steamer swung into the river. He was leaving forever the work to which he had given so much of his life, leaving it a fugitive and dishonored. The blaze of lights, the screaming of the great ferry-boats, all the triumphant brazen noises of the mighty city sounded like a requiem to him as in the darkest part of the promenade deck he leaned over the railing and nursed his agony, the supreme agony of an ambitious man, failure. End of chapter 36 Chapter 37 What has become, Mrs. Theodore Hastings asked her niece one afternoon about a month later, of your delightful friend Mr. Lutchester? Pamela laid down her book and looked across at her aunt with wide-open eyes. "'Why, I thought you didn't like him, Anne.' "'I cannot remember saying so, my dear,' Mrs. Hastings replied. "'I had nothing against the man himself. It was simply his attitude with regard to some of your uncle's plans, of which we disapproved.' Pamela nodded. They were seated on the piazza of the Hastings' country home at Manchester. "'I see. And uncle's plans,' she went on reflectively, "'have become a little changed, haven't they?' Mrs. Hastings coughed. "'There is no doubt,' she admitted, "'that your Uncle Theodore was inveigled into supporting, to a certain extent, a party whose leaders have shown themselves utterly irresponsible. 
The moment these horrible things began to come out, however, your uncle finally cut himself loose from them. Very wise of him, Pamela remarked. Who could have believed, Mrs. Hastings demanded, that men like Oster Fisher, Max Bookham, and a dozen other well-known and prominent millionaires would have stooped to encourage the destruction of American property and lives simply through blind devotion to the country of their birth. I could understand, she went on, both your uncle and I perfectly understood that their sympathies were German rather than English, but we shared a common belief that, notwithstanding this, they were Americans first and foremost. It was in this belief that your uncle was led into temporary association with them. Bad luck, Pamela sighed. I'm afraid it hasn't done Uncle Theodore any good. Mrs. Hastings went on with her knitting for a moment. My child, she said, it has probably imperiled, if it has not completely ruined, one of the great hopes which your uncle and I have sometimes entertained. We are both of us, however, quite philosophical about it. Even at this moment I am convinced that, if these men had acted with discretion, and been content to wield political influence rather than to have resorted to such fanatical means, they would have represented a great power at the next election. As things are, I admit that their cause is lost for the time. I believe that your uncle is contemplating an early visit to England. He is of the opinion that perhaps he has misunderstood the Allied point of view, and he is going to study matters at first hand. Pamela nodded. I think he is very wise, Aunt, she declared. I quite expect that he will come back a warm advocate of the Allies. No one would have a ghost of a chance who went to a country here on the other ticket. I believe that is your uncle's point of view, Mrs. Hastings assented. Why don't you ask Mr. Lutchester down for a couple of days? If you mean it, I certainly will, Pamela agreed. Quite incidentally, her aunt continued, I heard the nicest possible things about him in Washington. Lady Ridningshaw told me that the Lutchesters are one of the oldest families in England. He is a cousin of the Duke of Worcester, and is extraordinarily well connected in other directions. I must say he has a most distinguished appearance. A well-bred Englishman is so different from these foreigners. Pamela laid down her book, and drew her writing-block towards her. "'I'll write and invite him down at once,' she suggested. "'Your uncle will be delighted,' Mrs. Hastings purred. Lutchester received his invitation in New York, and arrived in Manchester three days later. Pamela met him at the station with a couple of boatmen by her side. "'If you wouldn't mind sailing home,' she proposed, "'the house is practically on an island, and the tide is just right. These men will take your luggage.' They walked down to the little dock together. Pamela talked all the time, but Lutchester was curiously tongue-tied. "'You'll find Uncle Theodore and Aunt, too, most amusing,' she confided. "'It is perfectly obvious that there is nothing Uncle regrets so much as his temporary linking up with Fisher and his friends. In fact, he is going to Europe almost at once. I am convinced for no other reason than to give him an excuse upon his return for blossoming out as a fervent supporter of the Allies.' "'Are you going to?' Lutchester inquired. "'Shall I?' "'Well, I am not really sure,' she declared as they reached the little wooden dock. "'I suppose I shall, especially if I can find something to do. I may even turn nurse.' "'You will be able to find plenty to do,' he assured her. "'If nothing else turns up, you can help me.' They stepped onto the yacht. Pamela, a radiant vision in white, with white flannel skirt, white jersey and tam shanter took the helm and was busy for a few moments getting clear. Afterwards she leaned back amongst the cushions, with Lutchester by her side. In the agitation of missing that boy, he reminded her, 
you forgot to answer my last suggestion. Is there any way in which I could help you? she asked. You can help me in the greatest of all ways, he replied promptly. You can give me just that help which only the woman who cares can give to the man who cares for her. And if that isn't exciting enough, he went on, after a moment's pause, well, I dare say I can find you some work in the censor's department. Isn't censoring a little dull? she murmured. Then you choose. Her hand slipped into his. A little breeze filled their sails at that moment. The wonderful blue water of the bay sparkled with a million gleams of sunshine. Lutchester drew a great breath of content. "'That's Aunt on the landing stage, watching us through her glasses,' Pamela pointed out, making a feeble attempt to withdraw her hand. "'It will save us the trouble,' he observed, resisting her effort of explanations. Lutchester found his host and hostess unexpectedly friendly. They even accepted with cheerful philosophy the news that Lutchester's work in America was almost finished for the time, and that Pamela was to accompany him to Europe almost immediately. After dinner, when the two men were left at the table, Hastings became almost confidential. "'So far as regards the sympathies of this country, Mr. Lutchester,' he said, "'the final die has been cast within the last few weeks. There has always been,' he proceeded, a certain irritation existing between even the Anglo-Saxon Americans and your country. We have fancied so often that you have adopted little bits of superiority towards us, and that your methods of stating your intentions have not always taken account of our own little weaknesses. Then America, you know, loves a good fight, and the Germans are a wonderful military people. They were fighting like giants whilst you and England were still slacking. But it is Germany herself, or rather her sons and friends who have destroyed her chances for her. Fisher, for instance, he went on, fingering his wine-glass. I have always looked upon Oscar Fisher as a brilliant and far-seeing man. He was one of those who set themselves deliberately to win America for the Germans. A more idiotic bungle than he has made of things I could scarcely conceive. He has reproduced the diplomatic methods which have made Germany unpopular through the world. He has tried bullying, cajolery, and falsehood, and last of all he has plunged into crime. No German-American will henceforth ever have weight in the councils of this country, I do not mind confessing, Mr. Hastings continued, as he himself filled his guest's glass and then his own, that I myself was at one time powerfully attracted towards the Teuton cause. They are a nation wonderful in science, wonderful in warfare, with strong and admirable national characteristics yet they are going to lose this war through sheer lack of tact, for the want of that kindliness, that generosity of temperament, which exists and makes friends in nations as in individuals. The world for Germany, you know, and hell for her enemies. But I am keeping you. Lutchester drank his wine and rose to his feet. Pamela is sitting on the rocks there, Mr. Hastings observed. I think that she wants to sail you over to Misery Island. We get some unearthly meal there at ten o'clock and come back by moonlight. It is a sort of torture which we always inflict upon our guests. My wife and I will follow in the launch. To Misery Island, Lutchester repeated. His host smiled as he led the way to the piazza steps. Pamela had already stepped into the boat, and with the help of a boatman was adjusting the sail. She waved her hand gaily and pointed to the level stretch of placid water, still faintly brilliant in the dying sunlight. "'You think that we shall reach Misery Island before the tide turns?' she called out. Lutchester stepped lightly into the boat, and took the place to which she pointed. "'I am content,' he said, 
to take my chance. This is the end of The Pawn's Count by E. Phillips Oppenheim. Recording by Tom Weiss, tomsaudiobooks.com.